you know, during this time, we have a time of prayer, and uh, I, want, I want you to feel the freedom to come down here and pray with me here at the front. If you've got particular matters, maybe that's a person that's on your mind today, on your heart today that you want to pray for, a particular matter, let's just pray for our church, let's pray for our community, let's pray for our schools. We want to be praying for uh, lots of things going on around the world. Let's pray for our nation. Um, but, uh, but each Sunday, I want you to feel the freedom to come and just pray here at the front with me. Um, and of course, you can stay seated where you are or you can kneel where you're seated as well. But uh, let's pray this morning and uh, just collect our hearts together as we um, uh, move into God's word this morning. Father, thank you this morning just for another morning of worship. Thank you, Father, for the songs that we've been singing. Thank you for the time that we've had, Lord, to gather on this Sunday morning. We thank you for this local church that, God, you've attached ourselves to, that you've called each of us to. And Father, we're thankful this morning that your plan on earth to reveal yourself to uh, a lost community, to a lost world, has always been the local church. And that is your plan. And it is your plan, Lord, to reach into the hearts and minds of people by way of your local church. We share and proclaim the gospel of your son, Jesus, with others. Lord, you anoint that, you bless that. We know that your word doesn't return void when we teach and when we preach and when we counsel and when we share the good news of salvation with others and when we point people to Jesus Christ, we know that, Lord, your word never returns void. You use it as though it's a wave washing upon someone's heart and life, upon a community, time after time after time until it has an effect. And Lord, you've called us to be the light, and not because we have made ourselves the light, but because you have declared us light by way of the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross and from the grave. And Lord, your, your word tells us that we are righteous, not because we have made ourselves righteous, but because you have made us righteous. You have declared us righteous. Our sins are not attached to us. The things that, Lord, we have done in our lives in the past and the present, the things that we will do in the future is... Christians as followers of yours. We know, Lord, have been buried with Christ in the grave. It has been nailed to the cross, of course, and Lord, it is still there to this day, and the life that we have, the light that we have, Lord, has been applied to us. And we just sit here this morning, we kneel before you this morning, we stand here before you this morning, just thanking you for your grace and your mercy upon our lives, because Lord, we know that we have not earned that. We know that we haven't deserved that. And we thank you for the many in this room, Lord, who have trusted in that, who have surrendered our lives over to you, Jesus, believed in you, and made you the Lord and Savior of our life, and you have forgiven us of our sin, you have redeemed us, you have made us right before you. And Lord, we thank you for that this morning. God, we pray this morning, as you look into our hearts, that you, Lord, would take the things that, Lord, are not of you away from us. God, we are sinners. Despite what you have said about us and despite, Lord, what you have done for us, we know that we sit here this morning as broken people, having sinned in our lives with our attitude, with our, our lives. Maybe we just took our mind off of you this week and began to make decisions on our own, thinking somehow, some way that we could or do better in the decision, make a better decision rather than to consult you, rather than to pray to you, rather than to depend upon you. God, you've said that that's sin because, Lord, we have taken matters into our own hands and we have forgotten about you and we've rebelled against you. And so we confess and we repent of that this morning. We repent of any 
any sin in our life, Lord, that is secret. For, Lord, we are individual people, but you know us. And you know what's going on in our hearts and our minds. You know when we've been angry. You know when we've lusted. We know, you know when we have uh, sinned against you by going outside of your design for our lives and for our families. And we've chosen our own way. We've followed our own hearts instead of following you. God, we confess and we repent of the sin this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your word that gives us promise after promise after promise. And God, we thank you for those in this room this morning who are not followers of yours yet. And they sit here this morning listening to this music. And they sit here, Lord, listening to us praying. And they sit here, Lord, talking uh, about um, their life or thinking about their life, rather. And we thank you, Lord, that you know them better than you know they know themselves. We thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves. And your word speaks to the truth. We live in a world of error. We live in a world that surrounds us of darkness, but you are the light. You are the truth. And Lord, we just pray this morning that as we've turned to your word over the next few moments, that God, you would lead us to that truth. And you would open our hearts and our minds to the truth, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and our ears to the things that we need to see, the things that we need to understand, the things that we need to know. And God, we have been praising you through music. We have been talking to you about your word, but Lord, we want to hear from you today. And so open our hearts, open our minds, give us the faith to believe. Give us the faith, Lord, to trust you, even as Christians, Lord, to trust you and not to trust ourselves. And so we give you this time, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this time of worship that we've had. We pray for this moment. Bless this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. You know, one of the things that I love about Sunday mornings here at Central, especially any church that we've been a part of, it's not a production, is it? And so there are going to be mistakes, there are going to be hiccups that are going to happen, right? And you can do all the planning in the world and set the table for everything to work perfectly, and guess what? Things don't work perfectly, and that's okay. So kudos to our media team for all the work that they've been doing behind the scenes. You know, the lights were going on and off before the service. Yeah, thank them. Yep. And uh, because as, as y'all were visiting, when those lights were going on and off, they're stressing up top, trying to figure out what's going on and why this is happening. And then uh, they, uh, uh, of course, got the lights back on. So praise the Lord for them. And I want to thank the Lord for uh, Larry Horn and others. You know, during the season that we are in a season of transition, we're searching for a worship pastor to be on the stage and to lead this team, to lead us uh, as a congregation in the area of music. Um, and uh, during the season that we are uh, looking for staff and praying for staff and building a team here, you know, it is, um, uh, God has risen up individuals at different seasons at different times. So there are people that have come from the outside in, uh, and then there are people from within, and uh, I just praise God for people like Larry and others, many who have done so much work behind the scenes each and every week uh, that, uh, that sets the table for us to be able to worship collectively on a Sunday morning here at Central. And God is at work. He has worked behind the scenes. I can't tell you enough how many things God is doing day after day after day in the life of this church. Um, so we praise God for that. Now, listen, I want you to turn your, in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 6. You know what Joshua 6 is about? 
Jericho, Jericho. So we're going to look at, uh, at the city of Jericho and the battle of Jericho, and uh, what a famous passage, famous story, and we're going to walk through it together on this Sunday morning. Joshua chapter 6, and there are 27 verses in this passage. I'm not going to read every one, um, but we are going to walk through the story together and see what God has in store for us, because I really believe God has a word for us this morning as a church. The big picture of Joshua, the book of Joshua is, of course, that God is faithful to redeem his people and to reconcile us to himself. That's what he's doing here with his people in Egypt. He redeems them, he reconciles them, he brings them out of Egypt. He's bringing them into the promised land. And that is all a foreshadow, that is all a picture of what Jesus Christ does for us and what Jesus Christ is doing in our lives, right? Through himself and through his work on the cross and from the grave, Jesus Christ, this is what God does. God redeems and he reconciles us. He sees us in the state that we are in. He knows that we are slaves to sin and slaves to ourselves and to our own flesh, but God doesn't leave us there. He doesn't want us to be cut off from him. God doesn't want us to be separated from him. No, what God does is he steps in to rescue us. And listen, church, that plan to rescue us didn't begin when you were born. It began from the very beginning, from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3, when there was perfection in the world in Genesis 2, to Genesis 3, when everything was broken. When the world was broken, when you and I were broken by way of sin, and, why, and, and the world itself was broken, God set out and set on a course to redeem and to reconcile humanity because he loves you that much. He loves you that much. You and I need to understand that this morning. I need to be encouraged by that. You need to be encouraged by that. He loves you that much. The book of Joshua is a picture of what God is doing. God is not a different God in Joshua than he is this morning that we worship and sing to and, and, and talk to. He is the same God, right? We know that. The Bible tells us that. But what's happening here in Joshua, specifically in Joshua 6, is God is on his, he is in this last phase, if you will, of redeeming his people from the bondage of slavery. Now, what did God promise them through Abram? He promised them four things. He promised them land. He promised Abram rest. He promised him blessing. He promised him what? Life. He promised him life. And what God's doing here is he is, he is he's, he's fulfilling those promises that he gave to Abram in Genesis 1 and 2. He's bringing that to completion. He's moving his people out of Egypt, and he's bringing them into the promised land that they would have rest, that they would have a place, a land, that they would be blessed by God, that they would have life. He's, he, he, he's fulfilling all these things that God has promised to his people. And so he's bringing them into the land of Canaan, if you will, or the place where they are, uh, this, this place of conquest that he's given this land to them. First five chapters have all been about preparation. God is preparing his people for what he's about to do beginning in Joshua 6 on. So you could draw a line between Joshua 5 and 6 and see that in the first five chapters of Joshua, uh, God has been preparing his people. He calls a leader. He appoints a leader, right? From Moses, the mantle passes to who? Joshua, and then he takes Joshua out and he says to Joshua, listen, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous, not twice, but three times. He says, be strong and courageous. Then he promises him these things, doesn't he? He says, I'm not going to leave you and I'm not going to forsake you, Joshua. I'm with you as a leader. Just follow me and lead my people the way I tell you to lead them into the land that I'm giving you. So he gives him all of these incredible promises. And so Joshua assumes command 
And then, of course, Joshua gets to this point in those first five chapters where he sends these two spies into the promised land. Where do they go? Jericho. Sends them into Jericho. And so when they go into Jericho, what do they find out? They come back and they're like, God has given us this land. God has given us this city. The hearts of the men who are behind those walls have melted. It's ours. Let's go. But God's not ready for his people to move into the promised land quite yet. Spies come back. They're all amped and they're excited and they're, they're joyful about the fact that God has given us this land, but God's people were not ready to go. They're still not ready. Jordan River parts, right? We remember the story. The, the Ark of the Covenant's in the middle of the Jordan River. They're the priests. God says, I want you to build this altar. I want you to build this, rather, this monument to my greatness, to what I did, and I don't want you to forget it. Because there are going to be days when you might forget what I have done. God said, don't forget what I have done. I'm with you. Just follow me. Just follow my plan. So they do it. But God's people still weren't ready. Brings them into the land of Gilgal. Now they're in the promised land. Now they're in the land of Canaan. But they're on the banks of the Jordan River in this particular region called Gilgal. But God's people still are not ready. Why? Because God only blesses those who are deeply committed to him. So what does he do, men? God comes to the men in Israel. He says, I want you to be circumcised. Why? Because I want you to be totally committed to my will and plan. Fast forward then, we hear the story of Joshua. Joshua is here on the, uh, at night sneaking up, and there he is surveying the walls of Jericho. He's looking at the city. He's thinking about the strategy. He's thinking about how he's going to lead his people, his troops, if you will, into to, to, to take Jericho. He's coming up with the battle plan. Then he meets on the way who? The commander of the army of the Lord. The Lord himself meets Joshua. You see, it wasn't Joshua's leadership that was going to win the day. It was the Lord's leadership because this is the Lord's battle. It always has been. It always will be. Joshua did not part the Jordan River. Joshua did not do this work. Joshua would not defeat Jericho. It was the Lord who would do this work. It has always been the Lord who does this work. See, the Lord's done a lot for his people up until chapter 6. The Lord has done a lot for you. He's done a lot for you personally. He's done a lot for you uh, corporately. He's done a lot for us as a church. He's done a lot for us as a people. And as the Lord does this work, he looks for something deeper in our hearts, something to rise up within his people. And so this story is all about the conquest and the beginning of the conquest, but God is gonna do something big in the lives of his people. The nation of Israel is now in the promised land. Now it's time to conquer the nations, states, the city-states that are there. 27 verses. I'm not going to read the entire story, but I am going to tell you the story. So look at verse 1 with me. In chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now Jericho was shot up, shut up rather, inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none went in. It's kind of strange. Think about it with me. I mean, here's the thing. If an imposing enemy comes against the United States of America, are we going to sit inside of our borders and wait for them to get to the edge of our borders? No. Any military strategist, any commander, any, any, any general, any uh, admiral is going to know and understand that there's going to be a strategy that is going to involve not waiting on the fight to come to us. We're going to take the fight to them. 
which is strange when it looks when we when we read verse 1 of chapter 6 why isn't this imposing city state called Jericho why aren't they sending out their troops to attack Israel on the banks of the Jordan River why aren't they being proactive why aren't they 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 taking the fight to them but not in verse 1 because in verse 1 we see that they are on lockdown they're on lockdown. The city of Jericho, and here's the reason why. The city of Jericho was called the city of palms. And it was called the city of palms for this reason. You see, the strength of the city was in the construction of the city. There are three big things I want you to remember about Jericho. One, that was within the city walls of Jericho, there was a natural spring that well supplied the city. It irrigated the crops within the walls of the city. It irrigated the city itself to the point that they did not have to go outside the city to get water. They could sit and be sustained constantly within the walls of Jericho. That's number one. Number two, you need to understand that the walls are significant and strategic. Because you see, the city of Jericho was a double-lined, walled city. On the, outside, the exterior wall was six foot thick. The interior wall was 12 feet thick. And between the six-foot and the 12-foot wall, there were large timbers that would, would straddle these walls that the houses and the, the communities and the neighborhoods of the city of Jericho rested upon. Not only that, but there's a third thing you need to remember about Jericho. The city itself was built on an incline, as though the city was built up here on this platform, and their enemies were down there. So the enemies had to rush up towards them in order to defeat them. Where is the strength, where is the trust, where is the confidence of the people of Jericho? It is in the walls themselves. It is in the city itself. It is in the structure by which they have built themselves with their own hands, and they are now held up within. They don't need to go out and attack their enemies. Their walls are that thick. The, 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 the imposing structure is intimidating in and of itself. It was fortified in such a strong way. Their trust was not in their military. Their trust was in their walls. And so that is the state of the city. But watch what happens in verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. What a statement. Because you see, Joshua had already seen the walls of Jericho. The people of God had not seen them yet. They were journeying from Egypt to another generation wandering in the wilderness. They've come across the Jordan River, but they have not seen the walls of Jericho. Only two men have, plus Joshua, the two men who have gone in and come out. But there's incredible confidence within the people of God that it doesn't matter how big the walls are. It doesn't matter how big the military is. God has won the day already. The trust was not in the military. It was in the walls but God promises in verse 2, this promise that God is going to give this city to his people. So I love this because God comes up with the plan. It's not as though Joshua comes up with this incredible military strategy. God just comes to him and says, okay, here's what you do. Wouldn't leadership be that easy at times and times? In verse 3, it says, you shall march around the city, all of the men of war, going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Here was the plan. And I'm going to summarize the plan for us. Literally what they were do, would do is God wanted them to do this. Strap on your armor. Take your sword out. Put it in its sheath. Get in battle formation. Oh, by the way, have a good breakfast. Y'all get up, have a nice breakfast, get your armor on, get your stuff on, get in battle formation, take off toward the city of Jericho. And here's all I want you to do. God says to Joshua, Joshua then says to the people, get in battle formation and you're going to march around the city one time. You're going to pass the ark of the Lord 
The priests who are going to be there, the seven priests are going to be there, and they're going to blow trumpets, and you're just going to march the entire army, march around the city, and go back and have dinner, hang out in the evening, relax. I want you to do this six days, God says to his people, six days, once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, I'm going to throw you a little curve because we're going to do something a little bit different. On that day, on that particular day, I want you to march around the city seven times and then yell. We know the story. And at the moment in which you yell, God's going to bring about the victory. The walls are going to come down. So that was the plan. That was the pathway to victory, which is outlandish in and of itself when you think about it. But what's even more outlandish is in verse 8. Look at verse 8. They actually do it. They, they, they take God up on this offer. Look at verse 8 with me. He says, and just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests uh, uh, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. They took God up on his offer. They obeyed. They got up, had breakfast. They, they, they got up, they put their armor on. They got up and put their swords in their sheaths. They, they got in battle formation. They took off and they went Six times, once a day, until they got to the seventh day. Look at verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you this city. And the city and all that was within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who, were, who are in, with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, key detail. Lest when they have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Verse 19. But all silver and gold and every vessel and bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted. Verse 20, check it out. And the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. The walls of where the strength, the walls, where the trust, all of that came crashing down and they devoted every living thing to destruction because that is what God told them to do. There were no exceptions, all but Rahab and her family within her household. And notice the aftermath in verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house, bring out from there the woman and all that belonged to her as what you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab out and, and her father and mother and brothers to all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside their camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire, everything in it, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and, and of iron. They put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all belonged to her. Joshua saved alive and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from Joshua, sent the spies out to Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord 
be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. Look at verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. In the aftermath, we have the promise of salvation fulfilled. Rahab and her family are saved, of course. Burns everything except the gold and all of that. Curse is laid on the city. It's all there. You see, if God is, listen, if God is going to do big things, he looks for something deep inside our hearts, just as he looks inside the, the people of God who are here in Jericho. God's people who are in Jericho. Spiritual victory, listen, spiritual victory requires obedient faith. While the walls of Jericho are falling down before their eyes, listen, their faith is rising. As they are simply doing what God wants them to do. Executing a plan that makes no logical sense, would make no logical sense to us. As they are doing simply what God tells them to do, every detail not shifting to the left or to the right, just simply doing what God wants them to do, simple acts of obedience, what's God doing in their hearts? He's raising up their faith in him as a nation. And this is what God does in our lives. You see, when spiritual victory takes place, it comes by way of our obedient faith, by just simply doing what God tells us to do. And the Lord says to you and I this morning as his church, that if we want to see spiritual victory, it's going to require that kind of obedient faith in our lives. It's going to require you to have obedient faith in your home. So let's talk about what obedient faith is. Let's talk about how faith rises and what that looks like, okay? Because there are incredible things here in the story I want you to remember and I want you to think about as we think about this story and how it applies to your life, how it applies to our church. So faith rises when we work together, number one. Faith rises when we work together. Do you see that in the story? There aren't any lone rangers here. There are no independent people who are going out and doing their own thing. They're all working together. It is a striking strategy that God gives, God gives Joshua. But he promises the victory in verse 2, but it is a striking strategy that he gives them in verse 3. A strategy that made no sense. And it's not as though the people of God were going to go make some victory. It was that they were going to claim a victory that God had already given them. That they simply had to follow with obedient faith and God would give it to them. Here's the thing about grace. The thing about grace here, because in, in, in every respect, the walls that are coming down in the story is an act of grace by God. These people don't deserve this. God's people, Israel, coming into the promised land certainly do not deserve this. It isn't as though those people, you know, they went and they, did, they, they, they were circumcised or they waited for me. They waited for this. Okay, they deserve God to bless them. It's not that. That's not how it works. God's grace upon our lives, we see it here, is not dependent upon what we do for him. It is simply dependent upon God's willingness to do it for us. But the grace of God, listen, is always the best soil for good works to grow. Isn't that true? The grace of God in our life is always good soil for the good works in our lives to grow. I mean, when I think about what God has done in my life, when, I, when you think about all the things that God is doing in front of me and around me, it should propel me, it should motivate me to want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ with my life and heart. 
It's good soil for good works to then flow out of my life in order to pursue the things that God wants me to pursue. You see, those with the Spirit of God produce the works of the Spirit of God, right? We know this from the book of James, because James talks about faith. The book of James speaks of this. He says, faith without works is what? Dead, doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't matter what your convictions are, doesn't matter what kind of flag you fly outside of your house from the, from the hypothetically speaking when it comes to your spiritual life. What matters is are you taking the things that God has done in your life and then are you producing spiritual fruit out of it, good works out of it, not in your own flesh, but in the Spirit's power in your life, right? It's going to produce good works. God delivers these things and he delivers this, he delivers them from all that they're, they're experiencing here in the story. But here's the thing, he didn't expect them to just lay around. Do you notice that in the story? He doesn't say in Gilgal, I want y'all to just hang out at the camp. And it gets to be about noon and then about one o'clock in the afternoon. And, and we're just waiting for somebody to come back and tell us, hey, God gave us Jericho. Did you hear about those walls that came tumbling down? Now, what did he tell them to do? He told them to do works in, the, in that space where God is doing this work in the midst of his pouring out his grace and mercy on the people of God. He's bringing them along and he's saying, listen, I want you to obey me. I want you to take me up on my offer. And if you'll follow me, if you do what I tell you to do, if you follow how I tell you to follow, then things will go really well for you. But he doesn't tell them to lay back at the camp. He puts them in the action that they might produce the work that God wants them to produce. They consistently got up. They got themselves dressed. But what do you notice about the story? Maybe around day four, maybe around day five, maybe they're thinking to themselves, man, what's God doing? But what you don't notice in the story is there's no complaining. Like generation one, remember that? God's people bringing them out of Egypt into the, into the wilderness. And what do they begin to do as soon as their bellies start to rumble? As soon as they start to get thirsty, what do they tell Moses? Moses, take us back. At least we had water. At least we had some, something to eat. They wanted to go back. We don't see that here in generation two. No. For six days, God tells them to just go around the city one time a day. And they never complain. They just follow. They never you know, become angry. They never doubt. You don't see doubting. Maybe God's not, maybe, maybe we heard the instructions wrong on day four. But, but where's God, when's God going to show up and do something? But we don't see doubting. And we don't see complaining. Instead, we see them working together. They all went, not 50% of them, not 80% of them, not 90% of them, not the people who felt like working and going out before Jericho. They all went, and they were in unison, and they all worked together. There was unity. There was purpose. There was a sense in which they knew what they were going to do and where they were going to do it. Listen, faith moves us to action. Faith moves us to action. Think about who and what we have. We have this great commission we have in the New Testament, right? Jesus in Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20 tells his disciples, gives the marching orders to a local church, to his disciples inevitably to our, our local church. And he says, listen, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That is a bold, that is a brash, that is an impossible and insurmountable task in order that he gives the local church. We can't do that on our own. 
We can't do that just as an individual in that sense. God gives it to his people. He gives it to his church. But listen, faith working together, that is faith working together for the kingdom of God. When faith is working together to produce and, and to, to fulfill the work that he wants us to do for the kingdom of God, then it's going to take multiple things. I'll tell you what it takes. It's going to take us praying together a lot praying for matters that, that God wants us to pray about. It, it's going to take not just praying together, it's going to, going to take the preaching of God's word, the teaching of God's word, the singing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's going to take serving in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ as a byproduct of what God's already done in my life through his grace and his mercy. It's going to take obedience, right? To fulfill the work that God wants me to fulfill. It's going to take you, maybe as a Bible study teacher, or you as a leader in our church, looking around you, maybe the people that, that you influence around you, where are they walking with Christ and where are they not? And in stepping into that space, into the life of someone who may not be walking with Christ at that moment, that maybe even in our church and speaking in, into their life. That's what it's going to take in order that faith to be able to have that courage to step into someone's life, Right? And to, to, to do the things that God wants you to do, to speak the truth into their life. It's going to take working together. You know how that's derailed? It's derailed when we get our focus off of the things that God wants us to do, and we begin to put the focus upon ourselves. You know how that's derailed? It's when we take our focus off of the, the, the singular directive and the things that God wants us to do in our lives and as a church, and we begin to focus on non-important things things that are not primary issues in the kingdom of God. But listen, church, faith rises when we work together for the kingdom of God and for his work. We see it here among God's people coming into the promised land. It's true, it was true then as it is true for us. Faith rises when we work together. I'll tell you how else faith rises. It Faith rises when we wait patiently on the Lord. I mean, think about it. Think about the story and what God's doing here in the hearts and minds of his people. He is, why doesn't he do this on day one? Why do they have to do this for six days and then on day seven, God then moves? What, what's God doing here? Maybe God is then leading his people to trust him and to wait on him. The plan is striking, but the, 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 it, it may just be overshadowed by the fact that the people of God are willing to do this. Not day one, not day two, not day three, not day four or five, or day six, but seven. They're willing to wait. They're willing not to rush ahead and jump ahead of what God wants them to do and to take matters into their own hands. There, are, there is no one who breaks rank and runs toward the city walls and starts to scale the city walls and do things on his own. There is no, no, no kind of individual bravado among the men who are there. They just are willing to be submissive to whatever God wants. It required obedience, but it also required great patience on the Lord to work. He's going to work when he's ready. We just need to follow the plan. It took patience to march around the city walls. It took patience on the seventh day to listen to Joshua, not doubt Joshua, not complain against Joshua, but to listen and to trust Joshua and to trust the Lord in his work and what he wanted to do. Listen, it is the same for us in our lives, right? Because faith happens when we are patient on the Lord. Our, patient, our, our, our faith grows. Uh, think of, again, in James chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. says, be patient, therefore, brothers, 
until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Think about a farmer. Some of you have farmed in your lives. Do you run out and plow your fields, plant your seed, and expect the harvest the next day? Do you expect it next month? Do you expect it in three weeks? You expect it when it's good and ready, (laughs) when it comes on its own. And you can't explain when it comes on its own. You can't explain how it works. That's what the Bible teaches us about farming. It's the same when it comes to the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand, and waiting for the Lord to come. God leads us to, and there is this this kind of discipline that God brings about in our lives of patience, of spiritual and biblical patience in our life. Are we good at that? No, we're not good at that. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, the last verse of uh, of of the book of 1 Corinthians says this, verse 58, therefore my beloved brothers, this is the last last word that Paul says to the church in Corinth, therefore my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord. In other words, be busy doing the things that God wants you to do, but to be steadfast and immovable. Always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, that that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You work, you work it, you serve it, you do the things God wants you to do. When When God is ready to move and when God is ready to act, he acts. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've run ahead of God or I've tried to do things on my own when it comes to my, in relationships, in, in, in matters of my professional life, if you will. Uh, I've tried to run in, you know, ahead of God only to realize for God to sit me down in my devotions or opening my Bible or listening to a sermon or listening to some godly man in my life who speaks truth into my life and say, listen, sonny, you need to wait before the Lord. Wait on the Lord to act, and he'll act. If you're doing what he wants you to do, he'll act when he's ready. He's with you. We understand this principle the Lord's, if it's the Lord's real will to reach the world, then he's going to, then, then, then working together to, to see this, this spiritual barriers in our own personal lives, in the lives of his church to be broken down, right? I mean, there are walls that sometimes that we build up in our lives that, that prohibit God from working and being effectively working in our lives. Walls like the fear of man, being afraid of what other people think or what other people say, and therefore being frozen and not acting upon what God wants you to do. Things like pessimism and not optimism. Having a pessimistic attitude, a condescending attitude, but not thinking about the things that God wants me to think about, not being optimistic and having faith and, or having a sense of, uh, of empty optimism instead of confident faith in the Lord to deliver. These are things that become spiritual barriers And certainly the people of God in Joshua chapter 6 could have had pessimism. They could have thought to themselves, you know, God's not going to show up. Maybe I need to take matters into my own hands. But we don't see it. They're waiting patiently on 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 the Lord to work. And their faith is continuing to rise. I'll tell you something else. Faith rises when we are fully dependent. Complete trust and confidence in the presence and the power of here in our day and age here in Jesus Christ. 
Because for God to move, in, to, to, to move here in Joshua 6, it did not depend upon, the, upon Joshua. It did not depend upon Joshua's military strategy. It depended upon the Lord's strategy. And by the way, he gives Joshua the strategy in a matter of one verse, verse 3. D-Day in June of 1944 took months to prepare and to plan before the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy and other beaches. God says, no, here's the plan, verse 3, I want you to do this, and then do this again, and then do this again for six days. Do this on the seventh day, and the walls are going to come down. It's in the end of the story. You don't need to think about it. You don't need to process that. All you need to do is follow it. And God begins to work, and he begins to move. The victory was entirely placed on the Lord. You notice that? They never pulled their swords out in six days. It was completely dependent upon the Lord to do this work, to bring about this freedom, to bring about victory. In the Ark of the Covenant in verse 16, if you look back at the story, it says, In the seventh time when the priests had blown their trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And in that space, listen, church, they were not shouting to bring the walls down. They were shouting to celebrate the fact that God had already given them the victory. They weren't bringing the walls down with the elevation of their voices. God brought the walls down. They're shouting in, in light of the Lord, God has done this work. They're claiming the victory that they already have. Requires complete dependence and trust in the presence and the power of the Lord. We are so prone to act in matters of our own strength. But what I'm reminded of Solomon tells his own son in Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding in all of your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You know what leads you to move ahead of the Lord in your life? You know what leads me to move ahead of the Lord in my own personal life? It's when I start to depend upon myself. But if you can do marriage, if you can do family, if you can do parenting, if we can do church without meaningful prayer, without studying the scriptures and turning to him for what he wants. If we can do what we can do without sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with other people, then we're not depending on the Lord. We're just depending upon ourselves. If you can do marriage without ever talking to the Lord about your marriage, if you can parent kids or grandparent kids, without turning to the Lord and praying and asking, God, if you don't move in this, it's not going to work. And there's no dependence upon the Lord. There's only dependence upon yourself. And at times in my life, when I run ahead of God and when I fall short of following God and I'm lagging behind the work that God wants to do, what I begin to realize is that I'm following myself, but I'm not following God in that space. But this is what the Lord does. Because spiritual victory depends upon obedient faith. And God is doing this work with his people, and God's going to continue to do this work. They're going to fail, and then they're going to succeed. But God's going to give them the promised land by way of their obedient faith to follow him. And so listen, we're all on a journey of faith. And that journey is tested daily in our lives. But faith is the gateway to joy and righteousness 
and then the righteousness glorified, the, the, the glory of God. Because obedient faith leads to salvation. It leads to life. It leads to the Lord's blessing. The Lord's plan of attack for your life, the Lord's plan of attack for your marriage, the Lord's plan of attack for your family, the Lord's plan of attack for our church is less of us and more of him. Always has been. Less of us in our will, and more of him and his will, less of dependence upon me and more of dependence upon him. It doesn't, it, it doesn't uh, uh, eliminate me out of the equation, just as it didn't, God didn't eliminate his people out of the equation of taking Jericho. They were right there in the thick of it, but what he required was that they got out of the way and just simply followed God, less of them and more of him. And he brought back the victory. They didn't, he did, and they celebrated. And they didn't pull their swords out until on that seventh day when they shouted, the walls came down, the swords came out, and they went into the city. That's dependence upon the Lord. And their faith rose, and it continued to rise, and it continued to rise. Listen, what God wants for your life and what he wants for my heart, my life, is the same as he wants for his people in Joshua 6. Have an open heart. And commit to his mission. Have an open heart and commit to his way of living. And when you commit to his way of living and you open your heart to the things that he wants for your life, God brings about spiritual victory. You know where that begins. Because if you're a Christian, it begins with you doing just that. Opening your heart, submitting to him. You're able to do that because of the spirit of God living inside of you. But it begins when we Surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. And for some of, them, some of us in the room, we need to simply ask the question, am I truly born again? Am I truly saved? Can I truly say this about myself in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13? And this is what it says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Can you say that about yourself? Because if you can't say that about yourself, maybe the Lord wants you to give your life to him, to say, I choose to believe in him, to say, I choose to believe in you, Lord Jesus, this morning, to surrender my life to you, and if you're willing to do that this morning, what God says is he will come into your heart and he will forgive you of your sin and he will have taken that, 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 that debt that you owe him because of your sin, because of your rebellion, and he'll take it away and he will give you a new heart, a heart for him, a heart to follow him. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. And I'm gonna ask our worship team to come up and they're gonna lead us in a song. And as they do, listen, you know, as we have our heads bowed and eyes closed, listen, what God wants for you and I this morning is our commitment to him, our commitment to follow him, our commitment to say, yes, I'm going to obey him by faith. For you this morning, maybe God is speaking to you about salvation as we've just spoken of. And as we stand and sing together, listen, the invitation is simply this. Our time of response is going to be built around these things. Maybe God is speaking to you about joining Central Baptist Church, becoming a part of this congregation as we are looking to the future, as we are looking to what God wants to do in us now. Maybe God is speaking to you and has been speaking to you about 
believer's baptism. If you have not been baptized after you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you need to be baptized. We'd love to baptize you and talk to you about that. Maybe God's speaking to you about um, just confessing sin. Maybe you need to just come up here and pray. Or you need prayer over a particular issue in your life. I'd be happy to pray with you here at the front. But for some of us, maybe God is calling you and leading you to give your life to Jesus. As we always do at the end of our service, we give you the chance to do that. To come up here publicly and just look at me and just say, I'm ready to give my life to Christ. Or I, need, I have questions. Can I talk to someone about that? We'd be happy to talk to you about that. Because that's what God wants for you in your life. I'm going to pray and we're going to stand and sing this song together. And let's have the courage to respond to him as God is speaking to us. Father, thank you this morning for your word and for your call upon our lives. And Lord, as we come to you during this time of response, we just pray that you would speak to us and that you would give us the courage to follow you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.